Hi everyone, my name is Christabel Makoha. I'm the Senior Director of Innovation at CARE. I'm based in Nairobi and I lead our team, um, our innovation team, where we work with teams to see how we can elevate the innovation um, work that's actually ongoing all over the, the, the globe, but at the same time, see how we can develop a brand around some of the work that we're doing that's really innovative. So I really enjoy the privilege that I get to interact with country offices to understand some of the innovative and exciting work they're doing. And today, um, it's quite a privilege to uh, have a conversation with Emily, um, the founder of Failing Forward. And we thought five years down the line to be an interesting moment to take a bit and you know reflect on what the journey has been like for Emily um, to, to start something and, and see it come to life and still be alive five years later. So Emily, why don't we, for the sake of the listeners who've never had you talk before, um, just a bit of introduction about who you are, what you do at CARE. My name is Emily Janak. I'm the Associate Vice President of Thought Leadership and Design at CARE. And the short version of that is that it's about making sure that we're actually using our evidence for impact, that we're thinking about what does this mean we have to change in our own programming? What does this mean we have to change for the next round of what we design and what we're thinking about and what does it mean about how we're talking to the rest of the world? How are we sharing our evidence? How is that shaping our advocacy and our fundraising and our thinking about what needs to happen next at a global scale? That's a good segue into, it's important for us to keep learning and think, and then think about how we want to talk about our work. But failure is always really difficult to talk about, um, especially in this sector, um, given how incentives are not always aligned to create space for talking about failure. Why do you think it's important to talk about failure? because we will keep doing it again if we don't admit that it happens. Mm -hmm. And that's how this podcast got started was I was sitting in a workshop and I listened to one team. They were trying to build an app. They were working with a specific consultant. It was not working at all. And two countries over sitting at the next table said, oh yeah, we tried that with that exact vendor three years ago and we had the exact same experience. And I thought we're doomed if we can't admit that it's not working. We're just going to keep repeating the same things because they sound like they should work. And we're hopelessly optimistic. We wouldn't be in this space if we didn't believe change was possible. So we'll keep chasing them if we're not willing to admit the things that aren't working. That's interesting. And are you seeing a difference? Are you seeing a willingness for people to talk more about failure um, now versus 2018? Yes and no. One of the things I was surprised people often said to me, still say to me, oh, well, you know, culturally, some people can't talk about failure. I've had people from all kinds of cultures, from all kinds of countries, from all kinds of spaces on this podcast so that, oh, well, some people just don't talk about failure. That hasn't been my experience. I do notice there's a space in the middle. We've been really lucky that we've had board members and we've had very senior leaders at the organization talk on this. And we have frontline staff talk on this podcast all the time. We also have external partners talk all the time. There is a middle layer of sort of management that doesn't feel comfortable, that often says to me, well, it's not my failure, it's my staff's failure, and I don't want to make them look bad. Or, well, you know, there are leaders above me who make decisions. So there's kind of this middle space of people. Frankly, let's be very clear, that's the space you and I live in. <laughs> people who are uncomfortable finding this space. In some ways, yes, lots more willingness to talk about it. And in some ways, there are still some holdouts of people I would love to get on here that I haven't had a chance to yet. Why do you think that is, why do you think it's harder for us to talk about failure, especially if you're not at the top of the food chain or you're not deep in the implementation? Why is it so hard to talk about it? One is because this is a really genuine and kind thing is not wanting the people who report to you to feel like they are being blamed for something. Uh -huh. right? And so how do you talk about that in a way that you own it, I own it, as opposed to saying, well, here's what all the people who work for me did wrong. And that's completely fair. And knowing that you're not the person at the last mile. 
I think there's also a real discomfort often with owning a decision with saying part of my role as a manager is I might not be the person who did that, but I'm the person who set the tone. I'm the person who pushed us in that direction. And that discomfort, I think, particularly in this space of owning the decisions we make and knowing that not all of them are going to work. But there is that mid layer of I make the decisions, but I don't actually implement everything. And I certainly don't make all the decisions. Let me be clear there. But for the ones that I make, owning that and saying, yeah, I thought that was a great idea and I turned out to be wrong can be really challenging. Brene Brown talks about trembling with vulnerability and, you know, being vulnerable as a leader is not the easiest thing because you're very much like in a fishbowl. And so it can be quite hard to be vulnerable. So maybe we'll pack that piece of the conversation of how do we create space for us to talk about failure in a way that's not, it's not perceived either as a personal failure or people are not nervous to talk about it towards the end. But I want to shift a little bit and talk about maybe an example that you want to share with our listeners today. There are so many examples. <laughs> One that I think is really persistent. I said at the beginning, a lot of my role is about how are we using our evidence and the failure to say, this is what the evidence is telling us. Now we need to do something differently. I'm very good at saying, okay, here's the evidence. Here's what the evidence says. Here's something I see. Here's what I'm putting forward as a conclusion or a thought. Following that through then to change is incredibly challenging. And I've seen so many cases where I've been saying, no, that's not working. We know that's not going to work. And then we do it anyway. And we repeat the problem. Because it's very easy to point out the diagnosis and the diagnosis is not the same as the behavior change. I talk to people a lot about this is like exercise or diet or your own health. Going for a walk once is great. It is not a long-term change. Knowing what the right mix of nutritious foods is, is wonderful. If it's not what you're eating, it doesn't really matter that you knew those were the things to be doing next. Because we often think of ourselves as we're experts, we're people who are very evidence-driven. I think of myself as someone who focuses a lot on data. And also behavior is real. And I'm a human and culture eats strategy for breakfast. And those established patterns are very hard to break. I can point to dozens of examples where I've written a, a memo about here's what the problem is. And then we never actually got around to changing anything because it's so much easier to say, okay, now I'm going to go look at the next problem than it is to really follow that hard path all the way through. Is there an example of a diagnosis that you've made and then haven't been able to follow through for whichever reasons, whether your own or other people's or systemic? We talk about this idea of learning agendas. So this idea of what is it that we're learning? And over and over again, there is a pattern for here's how you create a learning agenda. You set a whole long list of questions. You make yourself a little Gantt chart or some kind of a spreadsheet that says, okay, with this question, here's the methodology we're going to use. Here's who's going to be involved. Here's what the dates are going to be. And then you let that sit for the next year and you go back. And then usually what you do is you say, oh, we don't have a learning agenda. And you start all over from scratch over and over again. And I've literally just two weeks ago, had this same conversation with people who said, well, we don't have a learning agenda. Here's my list of proposed questions. And I said, actually, we do. We never looked at it, but we do have one on paper. So now we have two learning agendas, all of which means we're not making any changes because we're too busy arguing about what questions we would ask to see if we want to change in the first place. There are a few things that come to mind for me. One is that it is just so much easier and so much less personal to talk about the theoretical questions we want to ask. Oh, wouldn't it be interesting to know is a, a space where you can really be a technocrat. You can really be an expert and you can really talk about, well, the universe of development and the universe of this issue in this country or even this community. 
And so you can really remove it from yourself. It doesn't have to be about me and my behavior. It's about questions. And it's a lot of established patterns about the way we learn. For those of us who've been through sort of formal university learning, that's what it's like. There's a question, you do your research, you write your paper, you turn in your paper, you move on to the next one. That's what formally it looks like. So that idea of saying, we're going to stop, we're not going to write ourselves a new list of questions. We're going to look at this list of questions and we're going to change one thing. What do I have to change in my own behavior to move forward here is the hardest question I can ask myself because the whole industry is built around the idea of us helping other people, poorer people, marginalized people, people who don't look like me and who don't live in the places I live, change their behavior. It's not about examining how I change my own. So if I go back, I think, to the example that you're giving, because you're raising an interesting point where there's almost an observation that's happening at arm's length. And so I can sort of hide behind a set of really smart, intelligent questions to ask. But it doesn't get to the heart of the matter, which is, did I make a difference in someone's life? And that's a really difficult question to be part of your agenda. So I think you're learning agenda. So we end up bringing it down into indicators that I think kind of we feel like they're pointing us towards the impact we want to have. If you were to change one thing about how sort of in your role as AVP, you would do things differently, what would it be to actually get to people asking the questions, not for the sake of the questions themselves, but for the sake of really answering, did I have an impact? Because at the end of the day, that's what we would answer. Two things. One is that I would have built much more specifically into performance evaluation, including my own. Are we having an impact or not? Because we don't actually ask ourselves that question. We ask, did you produce stuff? Did you do stuff? Did you sit in the right meetings? Did you show up in the right places? We don't ask, did anything change? And there's a million reasons that's true. And you know, some of that has to do with the way we measure change in the world and the, the time horizon over which that happens and the way in which that happens. There's lots of reasons. Really feeling accountable that there are finite resources in the world and both this organization's financial resources, but also my time, the time of my staff, the time of the people I talk to, the time of the women in communities we say we're serving are finite resources in the world. We need to be spending them in the most effective way we can. How do I personally feel accountable for that? And how do I set the tone where that's what we feel accountable towards and not I feel accountable for showing up to all the meetings? The other big piece I would change is that question about how is what we're learning contributing and not how is it satisfying some need to tick a box on paper somewhere. Focus to me feels like one of the things we need to do so much more holistically. We need to say, pick one question and look at it for the next three months. Look at it for the next six months. What's the thing you actually could change if you wanted to? You and I were talking a little bit about climate change. If our learning agenda question is, what are the best ways to mitigate climate change? That's not a useful question <laughs> for an individual project. We're not going to be able to answer that. There are different things we can't answer. Putting ourselves much more in that practical space of our goal is impact. How does this lead to that? And if I can't answer that question, then it's time to move on. It feels very basic and mundane, but I think in some ways we've gone so far away from that point of holding us to just this one question around, did I have impact? Okay, how, did, how can I show and talk about the impact that I had? One of the challenges that always being is, is brought up when people talk about learning agendas is well, it was set at the time of proposal design, or I my my funding is structured in a certain way, so I really can't do anything much about it. So two questions in that one, 
Do you see any spaces, even in the context of sort of restricted programming to do what you've just said, which is a bit more of an being agile around the question we want to answer and the methodologies that get there are not as important as the question itself. So one, do you see the spaces in restricted projects to do that? And then the second question is, you've talked a little bit about how you would change your own behavior. And I'm assuming that applies to similar leaders like you within care. In the broader context, when we're talking about, let's say, funders, what is one thing that you would ask of them to start to then create this culture of creating room for failure and and then pushing ourselves to a higher standard? One of the things that surprises me a lot is that much of this narrative around, oh, well, the donor won't let us, particularly when it comes to learning, has not been my experience at all. In fact, if you can go to a donor and say, here's what we're learning, here's the evidence we have, here's why we want to change something, usually they're encouraging that. Now, Obviously, there are individual cases where that might not be true. But most of the time, if you can effectively go to a donor and say, hey, we see this thing isn't working right now. Here's why we see that. Here's what we think would be better. They're really anxious for you to learn about that. And they're really anxious for you to talk to them about that. They're not very anxious for you to come back five years later and say, whoops, never mind. It didn't work at all. And they're not very anxious for you to make a whole bunch of decisions that they're not involved in the conversation. Sometimes the, well, if you didn't ask me about that, or you didn't tell me that's what you're planning to do is a problem. But this idea of saying, really, we want to learn something and we want to learn it in a very practical way so we can improve what we're doing. Most of the time, I find that restricted donors are interested in that. But we do impose a lot on ourselves of, oh, the donor wouldn't let us or, oh, that was how we wrote it in the proposal. We change things we wrote in the proposal all the time. We know we do for all kinds of different reasons. There are certainly instances where it might not be true, but overall, there's a lot of space and a lot of interest in knowing it's a world of infinite problems and finite resources. We should be trying to direct them to the best impact we can. And if we can tell a compelling story about why, then there is more flexibility than we often allow ourselves to see. It's more perceived than real. I think this this rigidity that exists and perhaps if we were bold enough to, to push back that there's this facing experience. In terms of what I would ask other partners, other actors, other leaders in the space, one is to always push for what next? Mm-hmm. Okay, you've learned something, now what? What will we change? And the same as when we frame questions. One of the things I do when I talk to people about learning, I say, what is one potential answer to that question? I'm not saying that it's gonna be the right answer, but if you were answering that question, what is one possible answer? And if nobody can come up with that, then we haven't asked a good question yet. And then I say, okay, if that was the answer you got, what would you change? And if nobody can answer that, then it's still not a good question. So that is one piece that I would really ask is to consistently push ourselves to say, what next? What will we change when we find this out? The other thing I will say, I do this exercise with leaders all the time where I say, think in your head, you don't have to say it out loud, think in your head, what's the last big organizational decision you made? a real one, right? One that had financing on the table, that had jobs on the table, that had something about organizational structure on the table. Think about that decision. What did you use to make that decision? And if the answer to that was not something we were trying to learn about, then we really have not yet connected our learning to our behaviors. And so how do we do that? How do we, when we're making decisions, say, here's the kind of evidence I would need, the time scale on which I would need it, being very brutally honest with ourselves. Actually, if I find out that this is different, I'm still going to have to make the decision the way I am making it because of whatever factors are in the space. It might be about the regulatory environment. It might be about we've already made commitments to partners and we can't walk them back just because something changed over here. 
the reasons that we might be fixed in a particular decision. It might still be the right decision, but then don't spend a lot of time gathering data you were never planning to use in the first place. And I think as, you, as you're sharing that, I can link it to what you said earlier, which is if we have to pick something and focus on it, because you can't do this level of interrogation mentally on 10,000 things. You have to focus on the two or three that then you can spend the energy and the time to be able to interrogate. And I think that that sometimes can be one of the challenges or the moments that lead to failure is we are doing so much that it becomes impossible to actually create the space and the time for that sense of reflection, whether it's in the context of a project or on a personal level. I want to switch gears a little bit. When you and I have had conversations, I think one of the things that I've always appreciated is the space that we create to interrogate what our own privileges are, what spaces we occupy, and what good and bad comes out of that. Increasingly, there's a lot of conversations about our being locally led. Um, we talk a lot about global north-south relations. I'm curious for you, you started your career a while back in sort of a different space. You can talk to us a little bit about your journey. And then as sort of a white woman based in DC in a leadership role, how has your perspective about your role in the development space changed over time? in the backdrop of sort of being locally led and, and trying to, to think through this global north-south relationships. I started as a Peace Corps volunteer many years ago. And like many Peace Corps volunteers, I had sort of a vision in my head of, I'm gonna go help people. I really wanna help people, which I do. That's a genuine and I think not a terrible impulse. And then I landed in a village in rural Mali, very far away from a capital or from the kind of infrastructure I was familiar with and could barely speak the language, could barely make myself understood, could barely feed myself, could not. <laughs> Any of the basics of just being a human in that community and surviving as a human in that community, I didn't have any of them. And it was an abrupt and really important lesson. And like, no matter what you think you know and understand about the world, you're not exactly wrong, but you only have a tiny little sliver of what's happening here. And it became very obvious to me right off the bat, that kind of operating out of the textbook I'd been given, I have a degree in international studies, I had done a lot of sort of research and, and studying about Africa in college, whatever sort of script I was operating under was just nonsense. And it wasn't nonsense because anybody's a bad person, but if you try to speak to a woman in a rural village in Mali about, well, here, here's what I think you should be doing with your life. Why on earth would she listen to me? I don't even speak in complete sentences. Why would I be credible in that space? And I really just have to thank the generosity of the community that I lived in. It was a village called Kalibamba and the most amazing people who were really kind and supportive and helpful. And I often think about if any one of them had shown up in Washington, D.C., what would their experiences have been like? And not nearly as good as mine was there. I know that for a fact. And their sort of graciousness of allowing me into their space. And it became immediately obvious that the only thing I could do was listen to them and try to deliver on what they wanted from me. And what they wanted from me was very different than what I had thought I wanted for myself. What they wanted was for me to be at the health center and to help explain whatever the nurse was talking about. Um, I worked at the health center a couple of days a week and I spoke the language that people in my village spoke. The nurses at the health center did not speak that language. Suddenly people from my village would show up on the days I was there because they knew I would explain things to them. And they knew that everybody would be nice to them because I was there and I knew them. And so nobody would be rude to them at the health center because I was there and they were my friends. They knew that I could walk into the mayor's office and have a conversation that they would never be allowed to have because 
I was a 22 year old white lady and I could show up and do anything and I didn't know any better. So that idea of how do you deploy your privilege on someone else's behalf became very obvious very quickly. Also that idea that you have no idea what you're talking about and the very best thing you can do is listen and try to unlock something in the system that they're asking you to help them with is the only way forward. That really changed what I thought my role was in the world. My role wasn't to go there and tell them how to cook or what the right things were to feed their children. Um, my role certainly was not to explain to them about you know, the wonders of education and equality. And if they would only do things the way I had done them in my life, then everything would be fine. It was to really engage with them as humans and to take them seriously when they told me what they wanted. And that's a whole different role in the world. But in my experience, also a much more fun one, one that's much more genuine and a much better place to be, because then you have these connections and these insights that you wouldn't ever have otherwise. I think sometimes knowingly or unknowingly, we infantilize the communities in which we work because in all the privileges that, that we hold, then we assume that we must know better if we are living a better life, um, which is not necessarily true. Um, so I appreciate your reflections on that. And one thing that's coming to mind is one of the takeaways for you is how do you use your privilege to then have an impact? How is that showing up now? What kind of privileges do you recognize that you hold? And how are you using them to then create, you know, have an impact in the work that you do? And one is definitely the privilege of what spaces I can occupy. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I'm based in DC. I'm a native English speaker. I'm an American. I have a particular position in the organization. So I have a seniority that allows me to, to show up in particular spaces. My ability to show up somewhere is huge that, I, you know, I go back to thinking about the women in Kalibombo or the women in any village I have visited since then, because I've traveled a lot. They can't just show up. They can't just literally walk down to Capitol Hill and say, hey, here's what's happening. I can do that. So how do I do that with their voice? And that sounds a little funny when I say it because it's my voice, right? I'm still the person in that room. But how do I try to put their voice forward? How do I try to have more genuine conversations with them about what would you do differently? What do you want to see here? How do we do more of putting that front and center and less of, well, here's what I think they want. Here's what I know. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is this shift over the time that I've been working in the industry of thinking about when you tell a story, who is the hero of the story? Am I the hero of the story? Is care the hero of the story? Or is this woman who has done 99% of the work to make the change happen and we did a training or we did some support or we facilitated some groups or some sessions, are we the hero? Shouldn't be us. We're not. But really resetting that fights against both an entire history of how stories get told in the world at all, not just in this industry, but how do you tell stories and um, who gets to tell them? And so that's one of the one of the privileges I'm very conscious of. Another thing I think about all the time when I was in the village, it's interesting because I was working on a project that was a care funded project. And I remember there would be times where something would happen and, and I would think this is bizarre. Why is this going on? Somebody showing up here that we insisted we have to all spend a day in some kind of formal visit where there's some set of dignitaries here. This is one of four days all year. These people get to put crops in the ground and we're spending one of them dealing with whatever protocol this is. How did that happen? And as I have moved through the organization and moved to other parts of the world, now I know exactly how it's happening. I know exactly what's going on is because nobody wanted to say that's a terrible week, don't come. Nobody felt safe saying 
that's never going to work. Please don't do it. So how do we create that space? Because if you'd said to the person who organized that visit in that specific example, they would have been horrified. They would never have wanted to put somebody's planting season at risk, but nobody told them. How do you make it safe for people to tell you when it's a terrible idea? Oh, that's a million dollar question. And I think one of the things that you said that struck me is how do we how do we move towards removing ourselves as the heroes of those stories, especially when raising funds, if we're being honest, is a little bit pegged on being the hero. Could you share one reflection on what would it mean if the, for the sector as we start to shift towards who's really at the center of the stories that we tell? One thing I would say is just to acknowledge that we're not the heroes. If you think about any impact I said at the beginning, you know, we should be pegging ourselves to is the world changing in ways we think it ought to, but acknowledging that I can do the very best I can do in the world. I can get up and I can work my heart out every single day and I can show up and I can do all the things. And at the end of the day, I'm not the person who makes the change. I'm just never going to be. I am one piece in a long chain of how changes get made in the world. At the end of the day, those are the people whose lives are supposed to be getting better and they should be making the choices that they want in their own lives. How do we start to let go of that idea that I am the hero? Because not only am I not, but it's hopelessly naive to pretend that I am. The corollary of that then is if that person is the hero in the story, as opposed to the supporting cast in my story, what does it mean to be supporting cast instead of the lead? Somebody told me once I was talking about, well, you know, you have to do a focus group with the village because those people are going to have opinions about what should happen next. And somebody said, oh, right, but they can never see the forest for the trees. And you just have to let that go. That idea of, oh, well, I have access to the internet or to this data or to this set of statistical or analytical thinking so I can see the forest and they can only see the trees is a pretty patronizing way to talk about the work that we do. How do you think about valuing both? Because there is real value in a global data set that I might not see even in my own life. Climate change is a great one. I can see what's happening day to day in my own. Is it raining or not raining? Is it hot or not hot? I don't understand all the science behind it. I'm really glad somebody does. But how do you bring those pieces together instead of saying a mine is always superior? I think two things that I sort of see resonating in the conversation that we've been having. One is um, creating safe spaces for vulnerability and talking about failure in a way that's not punitive. Um, and then the second thing, just in the last couple of minutes, is a, a bit of a call for uh, how do we remain humble, so humility, um, in the work that we do, I think especially now, as we're saying, yes, we want to be locally led. What does locally led mean? It means that then maybe for a long time we've been occupying the center stage and moving away from that and requires quite a bit of humility. Emily, thank you for this conversation. I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but as, as we think about, you've hit 100 episodes. Congratulations. <laughs> Thinking about the next 100, what's next for you? What What do you want to explore? There's a few things in terms of topics, but one thing that's really intriguing to me that we've started to do over the last year is we've actually started to bring local partners into this conversation and more about them critiquing us than about them critiquing themselves. Although local partners are often quite willing to say, oh, here's a thing that's not working that we're contributing to. But that idea of who gets the space, who actually gets to be on this podcast I will say one of the things, and this is the first year we've done it, and I'd love to see a lot more of it, is getting donors to be on this podcast. We've been trying for years. It's really challenging. And I understand everybody is operating within their own constraints. Being a donor is a place of enormous power in this industry and acknowledging that some things are not working 
would be really helpful and really constructive. So thinking about how do we get those voices into this space to genuinely reflect on their own failures is something that I really hope we can do more of. And then in terms of topics, how do we build the muscle and how do we really make the change? It's somewhat easier to say, yeah, I can see that this is not working than it is to say, and now I will do it differently. Not just next time, but every time after that too. Thank you. Thank you for summarizing that. I feel like that's a really good point to end on without trying to dilute too much of what you've said. But thank you so much for your willingness to just engage in conversation and always creating this fun space for you and I to rumble with a lot of these difficult questions. Ah, well, and thank you for hosting. It's always interesting to be on this side of the mic. So thank you so much for providing the space.